We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, before we dive into uh, Acts 19, before we read the scripture, um, I had the pleasure of, we're going to be in, we're going to read about a riot in Ephesus this morning. And I had the pleasure of going to Ephesus when I was in college on a uh, trip, on a missions trip. And one of the days we got to go to Ephesus and tour Ephesus. And uh, the amphitheater that we're going to read about in the story this morning, I got to, uh, I got to sit in. And so I, I, I took a picture of some pictures because it was all on film and, you know, everything's digital nowadays. And so I took some pictures of pictures. So forgive the graininess of it, but this were some picture, these were some pictures that I took of the amphitheater that we're going to read about this morning. And it was cool just to be able to sit where this story took place. And as we were sitting there in this amphitheater, we actually read this chapter. And it was humbling to sit where rioters and a mob was gathering and angry. It caused me to kind of take a step back and say, man, what am I passionate about? What do I worship? And as this, this whole trip was just full of disruptions, as I remembered as, again, as you kind of go through old pictures, I don't know if you guys are like this, but it's like I had to dig in a, in a box full of pictures, right? And so it's not just opening like, oh yeah, all of my uh, Ephesus pictures are right here. It's like, no, I'm having to dig through a bunch of pictures. And it just takes you on this on this memory lane. And before you know it, three hours later, I still haven't found these pictures, but I'm like, I have a bunch of old pictures that I'm like, oh yeah, I, mean, I remember this, I remember this. And as I'm going through these pictures, I remember just this trip was just full of disruptions. What we went there for initially got canceled. So we're there in Turkey and we were supposed to be doing one thing. We had prepared beforehand to do this one thing and then it got canceled. So it was like, now what? On the road back from Ephesus, actually, uh, five of us decided to, instead of riding in the van we had rented, we decided to rent scooters. And so we were driving scooters around Turkey, and we came around downhill, came around this corner, and traffic was just stopped, and we weren't. And uh, our leader of the trip, he laid down his scooter and kind of went under a car. uh, And I somehow slammed on the brakes, and you know how like on a scooter or on a bike, when you slam on the brakes, it's just kind of like, whoa! And I went right in between the cars on the traffic. Didn't hit anything. Uh, but this, this trip was just full of disruptions. Everything that we had planned for, prepared for, was just was thrown out the window. The whole trip. The whole trip. Um, so as we read Acts 19... I thought it'd be good to kind of give you guys a realistic picture of the amphitheater, the, the, the theater that this takes place in, just to see the enormity of it. This, this amphitheater was said to at least hold about 25,000 people. So it's no small gathering that we're going to read about this morning. But with that, let's, let's dive in. Let's read Acts 19. We're going to be uh, in verses 21 and we're going to read through all the way through 41. 
After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there a while, uh, he said, it is necessary for me to see Rome as well. After sending to Macedonia two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. When he assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hands are not gods at all. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one all of Asia and the world worship. When they had heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Some were shouting one thing and some were shouting another because the assembly was in confusion and most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some Jews in the crowd gave instructions to Alexander after they pushed him to the front. And motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people, but when they recognized that he too was a Jew, they all shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! For about two hours. When the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, People of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and, do, and not do anything rash. For you have been brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess, so if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today, since there is no justification that we can give a reason for this disturbance. After this, he dismissed the assembly. Father, may your word shed light on the things that we worship this morning. Father, may your words be spoken this morning so that your church may be encouraged and challenged and edified and equipped to go out into your world for your name and for your glory alone. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, a, a few years back, quite a few, maybe, maybe 10 to 12 years back, I, took, uh, I was into photography. And I had this, uh, at first I started out with this film camera, uh, and I took a photography class at GCU, 
because I, I was working there at the time, and so it was free. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, free class on photography. I love doing it. I'm in. Sign me up. And so it was a film photography class. And so they had a dark room there. And so you would take your pictures and then you were allowed to go in uh, to the dark room and develop your, develop your film. And if you've never done that, has anyone ever done that? Has anyone developed film in a dark room? A couple people. Awesome. The process is crazy, right? So you literally have to go into a completely, there cannot be any light whatsoever when you pull the film out of the, the actual roll. Any, any light will expose, will overexpose any pictures that you've taken. So you literally have to unwind, take the film out of this roll, put it into this canister that's full of liquid to, to develop it, and you can't see a thing. You have to do everything by, by feel, by touch. And then you can go into the room that has the little red light you've probably seen on movies or something. Then you can go into that room and start to develop your film. But after you leave this room and you walk outside, I don't know if this has ever happened to any of you, like you, you're in a dark room and then you go outside and you're like, whoa, you got to take a minute, right? Your, your eyes have to adjust. Just you're, you're, there's this disruption of what you were doing because man, all of a sudden you're just, you're just flooded with this light. And it's these little disruptions maybe big disruptions that we'll see here that have the potential to shed light on what we worship. How many of you do well with disruptions? Yeah, me neither. Right? And if we're honest, a lot of times these disruptions, like you're driving down the road and all of a sudden your check engine light comes on. Disruption. First thing that comes to mind, oh, dang it, how much is this going to cost me? Right? Or you're driving down the road and your wife casually drops, hey, I'm four days late. Disruption. Not medically, shouldn't be medically possible. Disruption in your life. We start thinking like, oh, no. You get a phone call of something unexpected. Right? Maybe someone has passed away. Close friend, like when I got the phone call, a close friend of mine had passed away. Disruption of life completely turns life upside down. There are these disruptions almost every day in our lives. Some are small, right? The plans that you had, expectations of how your day was going to go, disrupted. Right? There's a storm and your, your roof shingles fly off. Disruption. And if we're honest, if, if we're willing to take a step back, it's usually those disruptions. Those disruptions of our normal way of life, of our normal rhythms, where we kind of step out of the, of the darkness and all of a sudden like, whoa, Disruption. that if we're, if we're willing to kind of take a step back and let our eyes adjust a little bit, we might be able to see what God is doing. We might be able to see what our hearts truly worship. Because man, that check engine light, what that brings up in me is how much my life revolves around money. 
how are we going to pay for this? How much is this going to cost me? Are we going to have any savings left when this is done? Should we just sell the car? Ah, dang it, just get rid of it. Just buy a new one. When your wife drops something like four days late on you, my first reaction is like, oh, what a gift of life we'll, we'll be able to bring into this. No, it was, this is going to mess up my life. No date nights for another 10 years? Nope. I'm going to be almost 70 when he's graduating high school. You know, like all of these things, like my first reaction was like, this is not good. Because what it revealed in my heart is like how much of my life revolves, still revolves around me and my time. So as we'll see in this passage today, these disruptions can be good. Sorry, babe, I didn't, I didn't tell you I was, gonna, I was gonna talk about that this morning, but I had to bring it up. I didn't give you a heads up, that's my bad. No announcement. Oh yeah, and I was just gonna leave it hanging. No, we're good, we're good. There's, there's, but it was like, it was like 10.45 at night, and I'm like, Walmart, like we're getting a test and we're, 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 we're good. No, no announcement this morning. The, fir- the, first, uh, the first person we're introduced to this morning is Demetrius. Demetrius is a silversmith. His whole business, his way of life is revolved around making these statues, these shrines of the great Artemis. There was a temple of Artemis in, in Ephesus. And from what I've read, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the world at this time. It drew hundreds of thousands of people to, this, to, to Ephesus. This temple was larger than a football field in size. It was huge. It was very profitable for a lot of people. In fact, it was so profitable, so much money was coming in and out of this temple that they actually started, the temple actually would loan money to people. It became a bank. Instead of the Bank of America, it was the Bank of Artemis. They would loan money to people. And so this was a very profitable business for Demetrius. This is how he made his living. But Demetrius, when confronted with the gospel, see, he had heard about Paul. He had heard about this gospel he was, who he was talking about. He had heard about this like, hey, he's telling everyone there's only one true living God and it's not found in statues, in shrines, our very way of life. If he continues to do this and more and more people believe this, we're going to go out of business. We won't have a business. And instead of asking, how can I get to know this living God? Demetrius is asking, how will I make a living? So this gospel, this way of life, the way that uh, the Bible talks about these followers of Jesus disrupt Demetrius' way of life. And I want us to listen how he responds to this. And see if we can find ourselves in this response. Or see if this isn't one of the responses of our culture. 
So Demetrius, instead of just, man, like, how do I restructure my business? Uh, if this comes along, what is this about the God? Ah, it's no big worry. I'm just going to continue in your business. He invites others into that fear. He persuades others to join him in that. So he gathers all of his business partners, all the other silversmiths, and he's like, guys, we're going to go out of business. But he disguises that fear with religious language. He he disguises his true motives with religious language. And that religious language is clothed in fear. And you watch any uh, any, uh, political debate or commercial, and both sides... Demetrius might have worked for, he might have worked for CNN or Fox News. Because he, he, he speaks this broadcast to those and he disguises his true motive uh, with religious language, saying, hey, 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 his true motive is like, I'm not going to be able to make a living. My wealth, my power, my influence is going to go away if this continues. But how do I motivate others? Fear. Fear is a great motivator. Fear is a great motivator. So he creates fear in others around him by using religious language. You see, his true worship, what his heart truly worshipped was the money. But he used Artemis to create the fear for better business. If that isn't how our culture operates in any media, news, social media, reading. Are the, the things that we truly worship, whether it's human secularism, whether it's a Christian nation, money, power, better education. We will use religious language clothed in fear to motivate others to gather on our side. That's what Demetrius did. And he gathers a whole crowd. So where Demetrius, where there is disruption, now with this crowd, there's an eruption of fear. So the city was, in verse 29, so the city was filled with confusion and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were with Paul. Paul wanted to go in, but the disciples are like, dude, they will kill you. Some who were shouting with one another, one thing and some another, because he simply was in confusion. Most of them didn't even know why they had come. So who's the crowd made up of? There's two types of people here in this crowd. This whole city gathers in this amphitheater now. So what started out as a small group of silversmiths and businessmen saying, great is Artemis. They travel throughout the city. 
And the whole city gathers into this amphitheater. Great is Artemis. The whole city, the rest of the city, might have just thought, man, this is, what is this, a rally? An Artemis rally? Let's go. I, I guess we're worshiping Artemis in the amphitheater now. They had no idea why they were gathering. But they're swept up. And they're like, hey, we, we got to see what this is going. Maybe, maybe it was FOMO. Maybe it was fear of missing out. Like, hey, something's going on. Something's going down. Let's go. Let's go see what's going on. There's two types of people. The original audience of, of Demetrius, who are caught up in this fear, angry that because their jobs, their religion, their regular rhythms of life are being threatened, and they respond in anger and fear. Then there are those who get swept up in the mob mentality. Demetrius' audiences probably start out with a very small group of people. And Luke intentionally notes that a majority of the people in the amphitheater don't know why they're shouting or who they're supposed to be mad at. They're just following along. Popular culture, unaware of why they're angry or who they're supposed to be angry at. They have no idea. And then there's the Jews. The Jews are with the disciples. And they give instructions to this dude, Alexander, and then they throw him out in front of the mob. Cool. Thanks, guys. Once Alexander goes out there, all of a sudden they're like, oh, this is the guy we're supposed to be mad at. It's probably him. So then they start shouting for two straight hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of Ephesus for two hours. And it says they, to, they sent Alexander out to give a defense to the people. Now, many scholars believe that Alexander's job, Alexander's role when they sent him out was to defend the Jews that they were not like Paul in the way. They needed to separate themselves from Paul in the way. Hey, 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 I, we are not like this dude, Paul. All of these followers of Paul, we're not like that. Don't worry, we're not them. And in order, in an effort to defend their position and their platform and their beliefs, they had to do it by separating themselves from Paul in the way. But inevitably, when we defend our positions and we get into this, hey, hey, we're not like so-and-so. We inevitably identify ourselves with the other. So Demetrius, he's, his way of life is threatened, is disrupted by this gospel, by Paul and the way, disciples of Jesus. So he gathers a crowd around him motivated by fear. And then the Jewish people, who actually probably had more in common with the people of Ephesus, defend themselves 
and separate themselves from Paul. If I'm honest, I can see myself in all three of these different groups of people. At times when unexpected expenses come up and my response is worry and fear and anger, what's revealed in my heart in those times is I worship money more than the Messiah. My life has been disrupted and what I worship is exposed. When I spend more time in media or social media or YouTube or news sites, rather than the word of God, I can find my heart getting swept up in the fear of those who I'm told threaten my way of life. This is the person you're going to be angry at. These are the groups of people you need to fear because they will disrupt your way of life. I so easily get swept up into that. And out of that anger for those people, I find myself wanting to distance myself from them in order to defend my position rather than moving toward them with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. This passage of scripture for me disrupted my life. And the questions I'm going to kind of ask us as a family church are questions that I've been wrestling with all for the last two weeks. These are big questions that I've been asking myself. That as I've been spending time of Jesus, what do I worship? He has been faithful to ask questions. What about this? What about this? And so with the crowd, with the light, Jesus, Jesus, the light of the world, exposes where we live in fear and not in faith. At times, with different areas in our lives, we get swept up in the hot topics of the culture. Wait, let me go back. Let me do Demetrius first before we do the crowd. With Demetrius, the gospel, Jesus, where does he expose our love for money? Over 40% of Jesus' parables dealt with money and possessions. Almost half of all of the parables that Jesus told dealt with money and possessions. And there are over two, almost, I think a little over 2,000 verses in Scripture that deal with money and possessions. Jesus knew that our faith and possessions are connected. So these are questions that I would ask myself, I've been asking myself and I, I throw out to you. Does concern for your economic livelihood ever prevent you from fully obeying Jesus? Do we let the worry of not having enough prevent us from fully living in the faithfulness to Jesus? Yeah. 
probably more apt, more often than I'd like to admit a lot of times. Do we ever let questions like, what if I won't have enough? Why do I have to be the one to give? Why do I have to be the one to tithe or to donate? Someone else will do it. Or a question like, why can't I buy that thing that I want? Do we ever let questions like that create more fear and worry in our lives than leading us to fully trust Jesus? Am I more concerned with making a living rather than knowing the living God? When I go to the polls in a few weeks and I vote, is my main and or only concern the economy? Will I vote based on who will be best for the economy? I'm still going through these questions. And man, am I not liking what I'm seeing in my, home, in my own life. Then there's the crowd. The crowd that gets swept up in this fear. And if we're honest, we too are so easily caught up in this. We can be so easily swept up in the fear of our culture. It's a great motivator. It's great for business and our leaders and our politicians and our business owners. Heck, even some church leaders know that. Where are lives dominated more by fear than faith? If you were to take a step back, your job, your family, your schooling, your kids, your singleness. Where is your life more dominated by fear than faith? Who or what groups of people are we being taught to fear? Who or what groups of people do we find ourselves being angry with? And maybe we don't even know why. We've seen the effects of major disturbances in our culture. We've seen riots on the news. We've seen insurrections. We've seen gatherings like this. And almost all of these are out of a fear of something or someone. Who are, we be ta- who are we being taught to fear? And ask your question, why am I being taught to fear those people? Is it because of a, a belief, a position, a platform? What are people worshiping that they create religious language clothed in fear 
to gather a crowd? Do we direct our anger to the foreigner and the immigrant because this is our nation? Do we direct our anger to the poor and the unhoused because they're lazy and they don't want to work? Do we direct our anger to the person on the other side of the aisle because my position, my platform, my policy is the best way to make this a Christian nation again? Or the best way for humanity to progress and to flourish? Both of which are rooted in idolatry disguised with religious language clothed in fear. First John 4, 18 through 21 says this, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. Pretty straightforward. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And then we have the Jews who in an effort to defend or distance, uh, defend their positions end up distancing themselves from Paul. And when we live in fear, I find myself, when I live in fear, I give myself permission to distance myself from others. When I'm swept up into this fear, it's very easy for me to distance myself from others. A lot of the division we see in our country right now is rooted in fear. The inconsistencies in my own life where I say, I love God on one hand, but on the other hand, I unconsciously and even sometimes consciously distance myself from people. So here are some questions that I've been asking that I throw out to you. Does your concern for being right ever prevent you from obeying Jesus fully? Are you more concerned with defending your position than moving towards people? Are you you distancing yourself from anyone or a group of people in order to not be identified as one of them? Or maybe because you've been taught to fear them because they're the enemy. Where are we willing to be close enough to people to be close enough to give money toward but not close enough to get caught up in the messiness of their lives? It's a lot easier to give money, to donate to the unhoused, to the poor, to the needy than to actually get involved in their lives. Where have we been distancing ourselves? 
Where have we been distancing ourselves from others in order to maintain our own way of life? Jesus, all throughout John, all throughout the book of John, Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world. I am the light of the world, he says. I've not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. The light of Jesus, the truth of his story, the truth of his gospel, May it be a light, family, that causes us to pause, that disrupts our worship of money, of self, that disrupts our idol worship. And instead of flinching me like, oh, okay, and just going on with our normal rhythms of life, may we see that as a is maybe even a God-given disruption. A God-given disruption to help us shed light on what our heart truly worships. John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me would not remain in darkness. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, God, is faithful to reveal the dark parts of our heart is faithful to bring those areas where we are worshiping any other, thing, any other thing than God himself. And says, hey, I'm going to disrupt this so that you know I am the provider. You know I am the way. You know that you don't have to live in fear. You can move towards your brother and sister in love. So as disruptions come up in life, may we take time to pause and let our eyes adjust to what the Holy Spirit might be exposing in our hearts and in our lives. Then instead of moving away from and distancing ourselves from others out of fear, may we move in the power of the Holy Spirit toward one another in love and truth and grace, just as, just as has been demonstrated to us. See, the ironic thing is we need just as much of that grace and truth and love. We need others to move toward us. And yet when we're con continually distancing ourselves from one another, we isolate, and remove ourselves from community, keep ourselves at arm's distance from the ones that we're called to bear witness this good news of the gospel to. just as God moved toward us by sending his son Jesus to reconcile himself, to reconcile us back to himself, that we might move toward others in that same love through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't look, God didn't look down on his creation, see a rebellious people and say, nope. He sent his son to enter in, to move towards, to be a part of the messiness of humanity, to show a better way.
to be a light in the midst of the darkness. And now that is our calling, church. To be a light in the midst of a culture of fear. To be a light in the, in the culture of not enough. We can only do this through the power of the Holy Spirit in us.